the world of Islam, culture, religion, and politics. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Amin Tais. In today's episode, I will try and provide the listener with a picture of the rapidly changing environment of the followers of Muhammad after his death in 632. It is important to take note as much as possible of these processes if we are seeking to learn more about the religion of Islam as it would evolve in the decades and centuries after the revolution introduced uh, by what we called in the previous episode the Quranic Discourse. We had seen how the Quran itself represented a significant break in the lives of its original Arab audience, but how at the same time the Quran constructed its message on the mythical representations, religious ideas, and cultural artifacts already embedded in the environment in which it came to life. We also highlighted that many of the Quranic teachings lived next to and in tension with many of the ethos and values of pre-Quranic Arab society. With the death of Muhammad, a new phase in the construction of what will be called Islam begins. With all these tensions and difficulties in the background. Before discussing some of the details of this transitional period, I must highlight once again that most or even nearly all what we know about this early period comes from later Muslim sources sources that belong to a period of history that is significantly different from the times and the events that they describe. That's why one must be careful not to confuse the pictures drawn by people living in the late 8th or 9th century with the actual events of the 7th century. Does this mean that Muslim sources are simply recording Uh, lies and that therefore they must be dismissed? Absolutely not. They are what they are. Sources that present accounts of 9th or 10th or 11th century people about what happened in the 7th century. Not more, not less. As such, they are accounts that carry with them the biases, interests, purposes, needs and limitations of the historical times and places in which they arose. Remembering the past and recording what happened in the past is not a straightforward task. Some questions need to be asked. Who writes history? To whom is history being told? Who benefits from an account? Who has the authority to write the account? What do we do with elements that do not fit within the official version of things? Why do certain accounts get widespread acceptance by the people? 
Is it simply because they're true? Or is there much more to it than that? For instance, what do we do with people's beliefs, personal and communal interests, emotional states, intellectual abilities, as well as social, economic, and political pressures on the people? Are these things relevant or not? I would suggest that they indeed are relevant. So the issue here is not about disregarding what later Muslim tradition recounts, but rather about carefully reading through the accounts to decipher some of the layers of what has been constructed by the various Muslim discourses. I also need to stress that the historian trying to do the deciphering is herself or himself prisoner of her or his own context and historical and methodological limitations. And he or she is not therefore simply telling you what really happened. The historian is also engaged in a construction of the past. That's why the best historians are those who are constantly critical of their assumptions and of the methodological and theoretical tools they use to investigate and interpret the material they have access to. With all these points stressed, we then need to approach our topic with the needed humility and to recognize that what I will propose to you today is tentative and is open to question and to deeper analysis as historians and experts of religion continue their research into a complicated field of study. For the purpose of our introductory work in this podcast, I will highlight some events, but I would urge the listener to keep in mind all the elements that I mentioned earlier. So, with the death of Muhammad in 632, we already see the tensions that I described in the last episode play out in severe ways. We are told in various reports that immediately after Muhammad passed away, there was a power struggle. If you remember from this podcast episodes on the life of Muhammad, the Meccan followers of the Prophet had made a migration, hijra in Arabic, from Mecca to Yathrib or Medina in the year 622. The narrative tells us that the Meccans that came to be known as Al-Muhajirun, the immigrants, were welcomed by the Medinese followers of the Prophet that came to be known as Al-Ansar, the supporters. Now, in 632, Muhammad dies, leaving behind him an important legacy, but also a political entity centered in Medina, and encompassing most of the Arabian Peninsula under a tribal alliance. The question of leadership of the community becomes the problem of the day. In fact, the problem of the following decades. An immediate argument breaks between the Meccans and the Medinans over who the next leader would be. Some suggested that two leaders, one from each group, should lead the community. In the midst of the chaos, a Meccan companion, 
Remember, uh, companion is a term used by the Muslim tradition for the members of the original community uh, who met the Prophet and believed in his message. So in the midst of the chaos, a prominent Meccan companion by the name of Omar ibn al-Khattab, who dies in 644. Omar pledges allegiance to another prominent Meccan companion of Muhammad, whose name was Abu Bakr, who dies in 634. Abu Bakr was a man that the later Sunni tradition presents as Muhammad's best friend. If you recall, Abu Bakr was also Muhammad's father-in-law, father of Muhammad's wife Aisha. So Omar pledges allegiance to Abu Bakr and calls upon everyone else present to do the same for the sake of unity. Abu Bakr is then declared new leader. An important element in the unfolding situation is that another important figure within the early community was not present at the time of the Pledge of Allegiance. His name was Ali ibn Abi Talib, who dies in 661. Ali was the cousin of Muhammad and his son-in-law, husband of Muhammad's daughter, Fatima. The later Shi'ite tradition would present Ali as the rightful inheritor of the leadership of the community, since according to the Shi'ite tradition, Muhammad himself had explicitly designated Ali as his successor shortly before his death. On the way back from his last pilgrimage to Mecca, Muhammad and his companions stopped at a place called Ghadir Khum, the Pool of Khum. There, Muhammad called upon everyone and told them, Man kuntu mawlah, fahadha aliyun mawlah. Whomever accepts me as his master, Ali is his master. O oh God, support whomever supports him and show enmity towards whomever shows enmity towards him. The Shi'i tradition maintains that this was an explicit designation of Ali as the next leader. Many Sunnis accept the veracity of this report, but maintain that Muhammad was simply praising Ali's special status among his companions. Others see it as highlighting Ali's spiritual sovereignty. So Ali was not present at the moment allegiance was given to Abu Bakr. Some reports claim that Ali was upset for six months before finally accepting the legitimacy of Abu Bakr. But this chain of events, and other events that would follow, mark the beginning and slow development of a group of people who supported Ali's claim to leadership. They are the Shia of Ali, literally the party of Ali, from which the term Shiites comes. Although we need to be careful not to think that these early supporters of Ali espouse the same religious views as the later Shiites. Remember, Shiism and Sunnism are constructs that would take a long time to develop into full-fledged religious systems. In this early period, there are no Sunnis and no Shiites as we know them today. 
This is why some historians prefer to call the early supporters of Ali Alids and use the term Shiites for the adherents of the later, more developed theological orientation of Shiism. Abu Bakr would only rule for two years, from 632 to 634. He spent most of that time fighting internal dissension. You might recall that the Sira literature presents the last few years of Muhammad's life as head of his community to be very successful politically. One after the other of the Arab tribes pledged allegiance to Muhammad as their leader and joined the community paying the zakat, a tax given to the leadership of Medina. But after Muhammad's death, a number of these tribes refused to pay the zakat to the new ruler, claiming that their allegiance was to Muhammad himself, and now that he was gone, they were not required to pay the money, thus in some ways breaking from the community. In some of these tribes, there arose also men who claimed to be prophets themselves. Abu Bakr decided to fight them in order to bring them back to the fold. These wars came to be known as the Wars of Apostasy, in Arabic, Hurub al-Ridda. Abu Bakr's mission was ultimately successful, but he would soon pass away. On his deathbed, however, he nominates Omar, the same Omar that had given him the Pledge of Allegiance, to be the next leader of the community. Omar would rule for 10 years, from 634 to 644, and he would prove to be a very capable military leader. Omar would shift those internal tensions within the community to external directions, and he would do it in effective ways. It is under Omar that the Arab conquests would really take off. In a matter of years, the geographical domain controlled by the Arabs would grow in an impressive fashion. The Iranian Sasanian Empire would completely crumble with the Battle of Qadisiyah in 637 being a major moment that led to the Arab taking of the Sasanian capital, Tessiphon. Before that, on a different front, the Arab army decisively defeated the Byzantine army at the Battle of Al-Yarmouk in 636 and took over Damascus, opening the door to conquering more areas previously controlled by the Byzantine Empire or Eastern Roman Empire, including Jerusalem in 638, Alexandria in 642, and again in 646. The conquest will continue under Omar's successors. Ultimately, the Arab armies will take over Iran, North Africa, Spain, Central Asia, the Indian subcontinent, and would knock on the door of the Byzantine capital Constantinople and on the door of what is today southern France. Here I must highlight three important points. Number one, Omar had established a system that allowed the conquered people to retain control of their lands and to maintain their way of life 
in exchange of two taxes, a poll tax or a head tax called jizya and the land tax called kharaj. The proceeds from taxation were distributed among the Arabs based on how long they had been adherent to Islam. In Arabic, al-asbaqiyya. The details of this entitlement program were written in what is called in Arabic diwan, a sort of official record or register. As many historians have argued, this allowed the Arabs to continue being a mobile military occupying force that did not settle down in the conquered areas. But on the other hand, it created economic disparities between those who received large sums of revenue and those who did not, therefore setting up the stage for dissatisfaction and dissent down the road. Number two, Omar was keen on keeping the conquering Arab armies from assimilating into the lifestyles of the newly conquered areas. He established garrison cities, in Arabic, Amsar, that's the plural, the singular is Masr. So he established garrison cities outside existing settlements to accommodate the Arab armies and their families. Examples of such garrison cities include Basra and Kufa in Iraq and Al-Fustat in Egypt. All three would eventually become important urban centers within Islamic civilization, with the last one, Al-Fustad, being later renamed Cairo. Number three, unlike what has been ingrained in popular Western memory, the Arab conquerors did not impose their religion on the conquered people. Quite the opposite. Converting to the religion of the Arabs would have been difficult for anyone interested to do so. You might notice here that I'm using the term religion of the Arabs or Arab religion instead of Islam. The reason is that I would like the listeners to not confuse the rudimentary forms of Islamic discourses in this early period with the more theologically and legally complex Islamic discourses of later times. So to go back to the difficulties faced by someone seeking to convert, I would note that in keeping with traditional tribal norms, a person seeking to convert must first become what is called a mawla, a sort of honorary Arab tied to a tribe, thus gaining tribal affiliation with that tribe. Remember that in Arab tribal society that I described in one of the early episodes of this podcast, a person could not live on his own. They had to be part of a tribe whose members are connected by blood so that they receive tribal protection and that the tribe is responsible in case of the need to pay diya or blood money for murder. If one is not related by blood to any tribe, they had to become a maula of a tribe, an extension of the tribe in a way. The point here is that converting to Islam for the non-Arabs in this early period was no easy task. We even have reports of instances under the rule of the Umayyad rulers later that conversion was discouraged in a number of ways. Remember that once someone converted 
Theoretically, they did not have to pay the poll tax or jizya of the protected people or dhimmis, ahl dhimma in Arabic. But they pay instead the more manageable zakat when applicable. This means that more converts equaled less revenue for the bureaucracy of the empire. With these points, I will conclude today's podcast and I will continue discussing the changing landscapes of the early community after Muhammad's death in the next episode. Thank you for listening. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you.